0: Everyone and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else we can think of. I'm your host today, Trisha Rich from Holland and Knight, and co-hosting the pod with me today is one of my favorite people, my longtime friend, Bob Glaves, the Executive Director of the Chicago Bar Foundation. Hi, Bob. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Happy to be here. I was once a guest. This is a big moment for me to be a co-host. So.
0: <laughs> I know. How excited are you? <laughs>
1: yes, yes. It's big stuff, but I'm particularly excited by who we get to interview today. So.
0: Yeah. Um, last and definitely not least, we are joined here today by Emmanuel Chris Welch, attorney at Ansel Klink, state representative from Illinois' 7th District, and perhaps most notably, our brand new historic Speaker of the House. Not only is Speaker Welch the first black speaker to ever serve the state of Illinois, he succeeds former Speaker Michael Madigan, who held the post for 18 terms starting in 1983 and who served as America's longest speaker ever in any jurisdiction. Speaker Welch, congratulations on your absolutely remarkable ascension to the Speaker's Chair and welcome to At the Bar.
2: Well, thank you, Trish, and uh, it's an honor and privilege to be here with you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're really happy to have you. So let's start at the beginning. Can you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah,
2: you know, I've actually been an attorney for 23 years now. Uh, I started practicing in November of 1997 and spent most of my career at Sanchez, Daniels, and Hoffman until two years ago when I joined uh, the law firm Ansel Glink, specializing in uh, litigation is what I do. Um, mostly, uh, but we represent municipal clients, governmental entities, uh, and I've been a litigator, track course cases in state and federal court. I've always enjoyed that, uh, but haven't had a chance to try too many cases uh, the last eight years since joining <laughs> the General Assembly. Uh, I spent 12 years uh, on my local school board, uh, but on, on a local school board, you didn't have to travel back and forth to Springfield. For the last eight years, I've been State representative in the west suburban Cook County area. And so I get to practice law pretty much during the summertime and the fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time of year, I am uh, in Springfield quite a bit uh, doing the work of the people uh, as a legislator. Uh, and then January 13th of this year, I made history as the 70th Speaker of the House and the first Black lawmaker in our state's 203 year history to hold that position. And uh, What an awesome honor.
0: Yeah, congratulations. It can't be understated what a big deal that is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I got to tell you guys the story because, you know, when I went down to Springfield, Trish, on January 8th for our lame duck session, I did not think I was going to be coming home on January 14th as the Speaker of the House. (laughs) Uh, You know, my life really changed when I got that phone call on Monday morning, January 11th from Speaker Madigan. Uh, I tell folks, it's the, it's the call that changed my life that almost didn't answer because it was a, from an unknown number. Uh, and I was going through security uh, at the Bank of Springfield Center where we were having a session because we weren't at the Capitol due to COVID. And I answer this call from an unknown number and it's Speaker Radigan. I'm going through security. So I say, Speaker, can you hold for a second? Because my hands are full. I got a briefcase. I've got coffee. I, and I, I still managed to answer this unknown call for some reason. And it was him. And once I get through security, I take the call and he says he was suspending his campaign and he wasn't withdrawing from the race, but he was suspending his campaign. And then came the part that changed my life. He said, Chris, do you want to be speaker? And I didn't know how to take him. I thought it was a, I thought it was a trick or something. I'm like, Mr. Speaker, I'm with you. I've been whipping votes and, uh, you know, trying to help you get reelected here. And he said, no, the, the votes aren't there. It's time to you know, step aside and give someone else an opportunity. And so do you want to be speaker? If so, this is a great opportunity. And I said, who wouldn't want to make history? I mean, and I, I think I'd do a pretty good job with it. And he says, so if, if if you want to do it, let me give you four tips. And if you do these things perfectly, I'll be calling you Mr. Speaker. And he said, uh, you know, get the Black Caucus together pretty quickly and see if they can unite behind your campaign. If you get the support of the Black Caucus, move quickly to the Latino Caucus. And then if the Latino Caucus joins you, I want you to talk to a couple of specific state downstate legislators. They may not support you, but just assure them that you're going to always be a speaker who listens to everyone and hears their concerns. And then the fourth thing, call your wife. I probably should have started with that one because if she says no, then none of this matters. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I did those four things well, I guess, because 48 hours later, he called me Mr. Speaker.
0: I mean, that was one of my early questions that I sort of sketched out in preparing for this interview. Is that the first time when you answered that phone? Is that the first time you really thought to yourself, I could be speaker of the house in Illinois?
2: Well, certainly during that phone call, it was very emotional because it couple of things were happening. One, I've got this historic figure in Illinois history saying it's over, you know, and he quickly pivots to suggesting that I put my name in the hat to replace him. Uh, and so it became really emotional. By the time I was on the phone with my wife, uh, I think it took some time for me to regain my composure. Uh, it was a very emotional moment. And so, you know, that 48 hours was such a whirlwind. Uh, going from 9.45 on Monday morning in 48 hours to get to 70 votes. I needed 60, but ended up with 70. I, I can't, it was all a blur after a while. You know, I got another story because, you know, it was such a blur the first two days there getting the votes. And in the first five days of the speaker, it was like drinking water from a fire hose. So the magnitude of this moment hadn't even hit me. Until Monday, we were celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday, and we were sitting at our kitchen table, my wife and my two kids, Tyler and Marley, and Tyler just says out of the blue, he says, Daddy, when was Illinois founded? And I said, 1818, son. And then I could see his face was, Bob, was he was calculating, and he says, that was over 200 years ago, and you're the first black person to hold your job? And I said, yes, son. It took us over 200 years for this opportunity. And that's what Dr. Martin Luther King was fighting for. And you should have seen his face at that very moment. <laughs> I wish I had a photo or video that I had captured it because it was priceless. That was when my eight year old realized what had happened for his dad. That was one of the first moments that made me realize what had happened because his face was just, it told the story and it just really hit me passionately. And it was a pregnant pause, It's like, wow. This is really big.
0: It's really big. I mean, it's a remarkable moment for you and your family and for our entire state. So, as I said, it cannot be understated. So, as you know, I think, well, as I hope you know, we're friends on social media. And I saw the note you got from a certain former president. Do you want to tell our listeners about that?
2: Yeah. You know, I was, you know, I was sitting in my office. I've been, uh, it's like I said, it's been a whirlwind. It's been drinking water from our fire halls. But one day I was sitting in my office and I just randomly started going through the mail. I don't do that every day. Other people do that for me. Uh, but I just <laughs> randomly started going through the mail. And here I get to this handwritten note from Barack Obama. And I had to take a look at it twice and a third time because it was very customized. It wasn't like some cookie cutter uh, note, it was very personalized. And I was like, wow. I mean, I've got pictures of Barack Obama all over my office because he's someone that has been so uh, inspiring uh, to a young elected official like myself. And to get a handwritten personal note congratulating me on the historic occasion, encouraging me to reach out to him whenever I need to for counsel and guidance was just, was just awesome. And uh, uh, certainly something I've already done and will continue to do.
0: Yeah, I th- I thought that was really cool that he noted, you know, yeah, I, and I'm doing this from recollection now, I haven't seen it since you, you posted it, but that you had did not overlap in Springfield, that he'd followed your career. And I, th- I thought that was really nice. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I got there in 2013. By that time, he was in his second term as uh, the most important elected official in the country. <laughs> yeah.
0: Any other notes from any other particularly notable former presidents yet?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't heard
0: from Trump yet?
2: <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever hear from them.
0: <laughs> so it's been almost exactly two months, right? Two months tomorrow uh, as we're recording this. And um, what has been the biggest surprise for you so far?
2: Well, I think the biggest surprise for me so far has been the amount of time you spend with your caucus members. You know, you you do a lot of listening. Many times, I don't feel like the speaker. I feel like I'm, I'm the social worker. And I'm just listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you 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 become uh, someone that really needs to be a listener. you need to be compassionate and caring and uh, accessible to the members and um, and they have a lot to say and uh, you know so I, I think it's the um, the amount of uh calls and uh, seven days a week that has surprised me the most.
0: So is it a little bit like being a lawyer in that way? I mean, does it feel that way at all?
2: Yeah. And in many ways, I mean, I think my 12 years at Proviso and certainly 23 years of legal practice, particularly in counseling municipal clients, my experience has translated well to this job uh, because I think part of what makes you successful is being a good listener and hearing what folks have to say. Uh, my colleagues, they are who I work for and the people, Right. They, they elected me to this position. And so it's extremely important to uh, be open and uh, transparent and accessible to them and listen to what their concerns are. And so I've tried to do that to the best of my ability and, and balance that with also trying to be a husband and father.
0: Yeah, this new schedule must be an adjustment.
2: It's crazy. It's just crazy. <laughs> you, you said eight weeks tomorrow. Like, I thought it was eight days ago. That I got elected. It's just just been one big blur. It's just time has flying.
1: Well, I was just thinking, there was a question I wanted to ask you at some point. And, you you know, Trisha's question about being a lawyer and the similarities remind me this might be a good time to ask. A lot of lawyers are interested in legislation and want to come down and make their case, either propose something or take a position on something. And obviously the bar does that all the time as a lawyer yourself, as a practicing lawyer and a litigator, do you have any advice for lawyers who want to do that? And, uh, you know, should we bring our litigator persona or transactional persona or uh, definitely our listening persona, but uh, but just any advice you've got? You know,
2: the, the practice of law really doesn't come into play when it comes to legislating, um, but the skills that we learn as lawyers through law school, uh, in the practice, are very helpful in the legislative process and whether or not you're a lobbyist or a legislator in the ability to write and analyze the the legislation, the ability to stand up on that house floor and articulate your position. You know, I feel like it's a day in court and I'm making my case to the judge or jury, right? Uh, And my members are the jury that day because I need their vote in favor of my, my position. Uh, and so those skills do transfer over, but I I will tell you, um, I am blessed to be doing two of the best jobs a person could have. And, uh, I've always dreamed of being a lawyer and always dreamed of being very active in politics. never believed I'd be at the highest of levels, uh, like speaker of the house. Uh, so, I mean, life's never been so good. I'm a lawyer, a legislator who happens to be the speaker of the house.
1: (laughs) Great.
0: So right away, I mean almost instantly you started earning a reputation for being more bipartisan than um, your predecessor ha- had been and in fact like really going out of your way to quote unquote reach across the aisle in a move that I think seemed to surprise many of your Republican colleagues from the reports I read on, and mostly on cap facts but in other places. Why is that important to you? And, and secondly, do you think it's working?
2: Well, I, I I hope it's working, and yeah, I think it's important because I think we need to get back to a more civil discourse. We need to lower the rhetoric in American politics, and including here in Illinois, I think the divisive rhetoric. I think social media. I think the apps like Parler, uh, those types of things, have really destroyed American politics, and so. I honestly believe that you have to change that through your behavior and people watch what leaders do. And So I think it's important for me in particular um, to lower my rhetoric, uh, be very intentional in my actions. And it's extremely important that even though we're we're not going to agree on everything, uh, we're going to probably disagree a lot. It's how we disagree that's important. And so I think when you're reaching out and having these ongoing conversations and building trust, When you get to those points of disagreement, it's not so divisive, and that's extremely important. Uh, People are gonna always respect you for having policy differences. What they don't like anymore is the nastiness of American politics. And so my goal when it's all said and done is is that, wow, you know, he helped contribute to bringing civility, compassion, and some good discourse back to this conversation.
0: Is it part of this idea that even with litigants, we want, even if something goes against them, we want them to feel like they had their day in court, like they got heard by somebody that was important. And even when that person decides against them, they still had a chance to present their case. I'm analogizing to lawyers again.
2: <laughs> so I would analogize. I think if you find any opposing counsel that's ever gone against me, whether it's in a trial, deposition, whatever, whatever. They're going to tell you that we fought hard. We were inside those lines and we fought, we fought hard, but they're never going to tell you that I was someone that was below the belt, uh, that I was unprofessional, uh, that I was someone that they wouldn't want to work with, you know, and that's to me, the thing that you want to transfer over, whether it's as a lawyer or a legislator, it's how you treat people, how you treat people is how they remember you. And I think that's one of the big reasons why I was able to put together uh, 70 votes in a 48 hour period of time. It's because it's all about how you treat people. I think many of my Republican colleagues quietly wish they could have voted for me, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think we should take our first break, and we will be back in just a minute.
1: Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org.
3: This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process. CourtFiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients.
0: Okay, we are back with Speaker Welch and Bob Glaves from the Chicago Bar Foundation. Thank you again for joining us today. One of the early headlines I read in connection with your election to the speaker position is that you favor term limits for leadership positions. What term limits do you favor, first of all? And then and why do you think that's important?
2: Well, I mean, not only did I say I favored it, you know, we took action. And right. before I became speaker, I supported term limits for leadership Uh, That's the speaker and the minority leader. And during the 48-hour period of time and talking to my colleagues, that was something that was very important to many of them. And I said, well, I mean, I've supported that before being speaker. And certainly if I'm elected, it's something I will support as speaker. And so one of the first things that we do as a General Assembly is vote on our rules. Our rules govern how we govern. And so our rules now say that a speaker and minority leader, can only serve no more than five terms, five terms, two years each, a decade. I think a decade is certainly enough time for you to leave a significant mark. And I certainly know that a decade from now, if I was blessed to serve for 10 years in this distinguished position, uh, that I'd be probably ready to pass the torch. And we have a very deep bench, there's going to be plenty of people ready to, to take that torch. And so It brings fresh perspectives and ideas. And uh, I just think it's good for government.
0: Excellent. Yeah. It's hard for me not to think about whenever I read about Speaker Madigan's reign, think about to myself, I was two when this man (laughs) became Speaker of the House. And you're not that much older than I am. So we were both children. I mean, that was a long time to serve. So I I can understand um, the idea that getting new voices is important.
2: Speaker Madigan was sworn in as a state representative. A month before I was born. <laughs> so it's, a,
0: it's an amazing tenure. Yeah.
2: You will never see anywhere in the country a legislator serve for 50 years and serve as 36 years as a chamber's leader, 36 years as the Speaker of the House. He's historic in just for those two reasons. Uh, and so for me to replace such a historic person is a distinguishing fact, but also then to also be the first. Black lawmaker in our state's 203-year history? Think about that. 50 years in our chamber and our state's 203 years old. Almost a quarter of our state's history uh he spent in the legislature.
0: It, it's I know that Madigan gets a lot of flack. I'm actually a fan of Speaker Madigan's full disclosure. But that is a remarkable tenure for anybody. I mean, you're absolutely right. A quarter of Illinois' history, he was leading the, you know, he was a member of the state house. So,
2: you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You know, a leader is going to take the bullets for the team, but he has to get credit for the good that has happened. And as a Democrat, for me, Illinois is blue with Democrats in all of our constitutional offices. We have supermajorities in the House and the Senate because of Mike Madigan's strong, sustained leadership of the Democratic Party and the House of Representatives for all those years. Uh, And we were able to sustain some significant progressive victories under his leadership. Uh, So make no mistake about it. There's a lot of good to celebrate. And I think when it's all said and done and the books are written, I think history is going to look back on him favorably.
0: I agree, especially over the rounder years. I mean, having somebody in, with his strength in that position during those years, I think, was really, really important.
2: And when I, when I read that book, I'm going to really love that chapter because I witnessed it firsthand how he protected core democratic values during four very tough years. 736 days without a budget. I mean, yeah, people God, were so. suffering. The only thing that was worse than the 736 days of the budget impasse. Has been living during a global health pandemic, but uh, it was just awful.
0: Yeah, I I assume that legislating right now during COVID nineteen has to be just about the most challenging thing a legislature can deal with.
2: Yeah, it's really challenging because you know we're people, people. You know, we like to hug people. You know, you know, be around others,
0: shake hands, kiss babies. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, you're 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 type A personalities, and you're you know, behind a computer screen all day. Uh, And so you're sitting in your offices and you're taking these calls and you just feel helpless many times, uh, particularly when it comes to all the folks calling because of the unemployment uh, situation and not being able to get get through to IDES, Uh, Mm -hmm. The frustrations that you hear on your constituents in their voices is is heart wrenching sometimes. Mm -hmm. People are suffering, you know, Uh, you get calls about rental assistance, mortgage assistance, uh, hey, we just need assistance, you know, and it's tough when you're in a shutdown mode and can't really do too much because everyone's being inundated.
0: And, and you yourself had COVID, right?
2: Yeah, I had COVID over Thanksgiving. Went all that time without getting it because I was following the orders. We had a pretty closed circle. We had. I guess it wasn't closed enough because it we, it was a circle of 10 back then. Now it's significantly smaller than that. But seven of the 10 of us got it. The only three that didn't get it was my wife and my two kids. Uh, thank God. That's good. Yeah. Literally, I was feeling awful the day before Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, uh, just feeling the worst. And I, uh something said, let me just get tested. I got had made an appointment and got tested that Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. And they confirmed that indeed it was COVID. And so I was down total of about 10 days. Uh, but fatigue was a lingering effect. I had a dry cough for a couple of months. Uh, but, you know, it could have been a lot worse. And so I'm I, I'm blessed to say that, you know, I wasn't in the hospital on a ventilator or anything like that. But, you know, I certainly will be glad when we're all on the other side of COVID and we're, we're, we're back
0: to our normal lives. Very much so. Um, so have you been vaccinated now? I know they did some vaccination clinics for legislators down in, in Springfield, right?
2: Yeah, what I've been uh, wanting to do is I've let other folks go ahead of me. I'm, I'm waiting my turn uh, because, you know, I wanna make sure seniors in my community get it before me and uh, those with underlying conditions. I'm really happy to see President Biden say, everyone's gonna be eligible by May 1st. Um, I've had COVID, so I've, I've kind of got a, a layer of protection already, uh, you know, so I definitely want others that are more susceptible uh, to get it before I do, but I do know a number of my my colleagues in the General Assembly have gotten it. Uh, they're older, they have conditions that they're concerned about, they have small children, and they've gotten vaccinated.
1: That's interesting. So that kind of leads to a question. I know has come up this week. The Senate's already been talking about having some in person. Proceedings again. And I know that question is coming to you as well. How do you see that playing out this spring, assuming we stay on the track we're on right now, which is a knock on wood, obviously, but uh, a more positive track with COVID? So the
2: Senate is smaller than the House.
1: We're double the
2: size of the Senate. And so they're able to do some things now just based on the size of the Senate. They're a little bit more spread out in the Capitol than we are. And you got to remember when we gather, we also have staffs around us. You know, the staff is what makes that place go. You know, so you double, double the number of legislators in our chamber. Then you bring in the staff, it's a lot more people. So in addition to uh, um, adding term limits on leadership in our new rules, our new rules allowed for remote legislating. We didn't have that before. So we really didn't do much in 2020 at all. And so we have been wall to wall, Monday through Friday having remote committees right now. If we were in person, we would typically only have committees Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe the morning of Thursday. So we're being a lot more productive in the remote space. It's our goal, because many of the members are getting vaccinated, uh, that after spring break, sometime in April, that we're going to be able to safely transition back to the Capitol in person, obviously, with some restrictions in place, some guidelines, members rotating in and off the floor, but we'll be able to be in person, safe, wearing masks, washing hands, watching our distance, but also the fact that many of them will have um, been vaccinated by that. Great.
0: So I wanna ask you about a piece of legislation that's really important to me personally, So I am a volunteer lawyer with the ACLU's Judicial Bypass Project and a board member at Personal PAC, so I'm sure you know what's coming now. (laughs) And so I'm following very closely the potential repeal of the Parental Notice of Abortion Act. Can you tell me what's going to happen with that?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the bill has been filed. It's been assigned to committee. I've been a supporter of it.
0: I know. Personal PAC thanks you for your support on this issue.
2: I've been a lead sponsor of that issue in the past, and we always run into opposition, of course. Uh, this year, it's being championed by Representative Anna Moller from Elgin. She is an excellent legislator, and uh, I believe uh, she was a, a perfect person to pass the mantle to. Uh, I think she'll be able to get the job done. Um, but you know, any good legislation, you're going to have to put up a fight. And so we're at the beginning of the process, and uh, you know, uh, let we, let's hopefully we're able to get it done in the session.
0: It's um, one of the things that is um, uh, that I'm blessed and uh, for, and then it's also a bit of a curse, is that I live in Representative Ann Williams district with uh, my state senator, Sarah Feigenholz. And so you always get these notices to call your rep and your senator. And I'm like, well, I can, but like, <laughs> these ladies are always on the right side of history, and I'm lucky to have them in my corner. But <laughs> then there's nobody else that's ever on the fence that I can call and say I'm a constituent. But I, I'm watching that closely and hoping that we'll be able to get that repealed this
2: year yeah you know and, and you know a lot of folks call me in a similar vein and I say hey you're preaching to the choir send some emails and call those that we need to bring on board you know uh don't call and don't call Sarah call <laughs> right. call someone we need to convince you're pretty pretty good at this uh convincing people thing Trish uh <laughs> yeah, <I try. laughs> you, know, you know uh call some of those folks that are on the other side of the issue yeah we're,
0: it, we're it trying works. to do that yeah OK, so since becoming speaker, you've created special committees for ethics and elections, um, restorative justice, housing, immigration. Is it fair for us to take from this that that makes up the bulk of your legislative priorities? And what is missing from the list? What what secret hopes do you have that you want to get done?
2: Did you mention tourism?
0: I did not mention tourism.
2: Tourism is one of those. Um but I You've think come to that, the
0: right place, by the way, because I'm a Route 66 aficionado. I, I, so, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Illinois tourism.
1: Yeah, she's and, not kidding about that. <laughs> she, she really is. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, um, look, I just announced my redistricting committee yesterday, and today we just announced a list of 23 hearing locations. We're taking the show on the road. <laughs> so, Excellent. There's a lot going on. My first year as speaker. Uh, but yes, those committees uh, should tell you who I am as a legislator, what I've represented in the past, things that I fought for the past eight years, but certainly something that I want to be supportive of our caucus on as speaker. And we've got some great chairs of those areas. And uh, I think ethics reform is huge because we need to rebuild trust in the legislature. If We're going to get people convinced that what we're doing is the right thing for Illinois. I think Tourism is important. When we come out of this pandemic, we're closer than ever before. You know, we got to get back to breaking records in tourism like we were. We had broke records nine years in a row before COVID-19. Let's get back to that after COVID-19. And uh, certainly with housing, you know, COVID-19 has shined a light on a lot of disparities uh, in black and brown communities in particular. And so housing is a big issue. Uh, So we have a committee around that so many important things that we got to roll our, our sleeves up and 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 get to work on. And uh, I'm excited to tell you that that work has already started.
0: That's great. So one of the biggest stories since you've become Speaker was the passage of House Bill um, 3653. Which, among other things, I mean, we have to ask you about this if you're coming on the Chicago Bar Association's podcast. So, um, Which, among other things, eliminates cash bail payments, requires police body cameras, expands training opportunities for police officers, and improves um, victim compensation programs. And this was sponsored um, in large part by the Black Caucus, but the passage of this bill makes Illinois the first state in the country to completely eliminate cash bail, which is, as most of our listeners will know, a reform that many people have been pushing for a long time. So number one, can you just talk a little bit about that with our listeners? And then number two, do, do you expect that other states will be following Illinois's lead in this respect? And especially in light of, I know there was a lot of pushback from certain law enforcement communities. So can you talk a little about that?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. Great question, Trish. And uh... I certainly hope other states follow in our footsteps. This was an omnibus bill that I believe we had uh, nine public hearings, 30 hours of testimony, just significant community input on as a caucus, the Black Caucus, after the murder of George Floyd last May and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many other unarmed Black people across this country. Uh, We went out and held a whole lot of protests but it was important to go from protest to progress. And we had to put policy ideas on paper uh, and get these things implemented into law. And so going in the lame duck session, we had four different bills uh, that were guided by our pillars. Criminal justice reform was one of our four pillars. And it's one of the bills that the governor has already signed into law. And we're just really proud of that because we believe that this bill is really going to get to some systemic issues. I mean, you mentioned cash bail uh, as one. How can that be a just system? And the example that I like to point out is, you know, we all know the story of Kyle Rittenhouse who went uh, to a rally in Kenosha, Wisconsin and murdered two people right there in the middle of the street. And he's out because he was able... To post cash bond. I think it was a couple million dollars of cash bond that he was able to get access to and post. While you have several black and brown people in our county jail system that can't even afford $500 and they're locked up because they can't afford $500. It's not because they're guilty of anything, it's just that they can't afford $500 cash bail. So the, the cash bail system just does not work. It's not a just system we have someone accused of multiple murders walking the street because he had access to millions of dollars while we have other people who haven't been convicted of anything sitting in jail because they can't come up with 500 dollars that's an unjust system and what we're trying to do is chisel away at those types of things that have nothing to do with fairness uh, and for those who are out there saying that this is this is going to make Illinois a crime Increase—that's just a myth, because you know judges still have the ability right now, with this law now in effect, to not allow a person out on the street because they can deem that person a threat to society. That's still in the language of the bill, but we have to get past the rhetoric that uh, law enforcement groups have put out there and just put the facts out there, uh, like I just did here, uh, and you know. I'm having a meeting uh, in a couple of weeks with my mayors and police chiefs and uh, folks here in the local area just to continue to dispel a lot of the myths about what was actually in that bill.
0: Well, great job. I think that a lot of lawyers in the community were really happy to see that passed because cash bail is functionally a, a poor tax, right? I mean, isn't that how it you know functions in the criminal justice system in a lot of cases?
2: That's exactly what it is. It's a poor tax. Uh, I like to call it a Jim Crow era law, uh, designed to keep uh, black and brown people in jail. They know they can't afford it, and that's where they'll be, right? And so it has nothing to do uh, with whether or not you know they're a threat to society. And, and so I'm really proud of that bill, proud of the work that has been put in, the fact that the governor has signed it, had the courage to sign it in the face of the heavy opposition uh, that was going into his office, and of the work that we're going to continue to do. The bill wasn't perfect. There's still a lot more work to be done, uh, and we're going to continue to do it in a collaborative way.
0: Great. So um, we're going to be closing out this segment soon, but there's one more question I want to get in before we do, and that's about the fair tax. Now, I was a big proponent of the fair tax. I, I, I viewed it largely as a civil rights issue, frankly, but it failed miserably when it came up for a vote among Illinois people. So what can we expect to see on the fair tax going forward? How are we going to balance the budget? And this is a super easy question. So I'll just give you like 15 seconds to answer. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Take all the time you want.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Trish. So, you know, from a policy standpoint, I have been a big supporter of the fair tax. I was very disappointed that it failed uh, in November uh, and, and not only failed, it failed miserably. But I, I think that we just didn't sell it properly. There's you have to tell people how you're gonna spend the money. If we do this, what are you gonna do? And I think we have to show folks that we're gonna be responsible stewards of the money. We all know that our current tax system is fundamentally unfair to working class families. We are one of seven states that has a flat tax. And so 43 other states have a progressive tax. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what we need to do. So the policy, is something that I clearly support and will continue to support. You know, from a politics standpoint, we got smacked down in November. So the voters want us for now to uh, come to the table and work together uh, as Democrats and Republicans and find a way to balance this budget. I think we're gonna be fine this year because we're running a surplus, uh, having better tax receipts than we anticipated. We just got help from the federal government with regard to COVID-19 relief, but we're gonna fix what happens in the long term, this is a question that's going to have to be revisited at some point. I don't know if it's next year or the year after that, but we're really going to have to revisit it. And when we do, I think we're going to have to tie it to something uh, that shows the voters where the money is going to go.
0: Well, great. Well, with that, we will take our second break. Thank you again.
3: Do you have a legal matter that you need resolved but want to avoid the expense of going to court? The litigation process can be stressful and costly. But there's another solution, mediation. The Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service enables you to choose a qualified attorney mediator to help resolve your business or legal dispute efficiently and for a reasonable fee. All participating attorneys have been fully vetted by the Chicago Bar Association. They have undergone an extensive training process to ensure that they provide the highest quality service and can guide you to an amicable resolution of your dispute. Call 312-554-2040 or email mediation at chicagobar.org to get started with the Chicago Bar Association mediation service today.
0: We are back with uh, speaker Chris Welch and Bob Glaives from the Chicago Bar Foundation. And we are um, really glad you have joined us today, but we're not going to let you go until we put you through our last segment, which is a little game we call stranger than legal fiction. So our regular listeners will know, Exactly how this works. Uh, Bob and I have both researched two laws, one of which is real and a a true law that is still in the books today, somewhere, the other of which is fake. And you will have to guess which is which. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Bob, why don't you go first?
1: All right. Thank you, Speaker. Uh, So we're going to have some fun with our neighbors to the north. These are both Wisconsin related. So, um, as you know, many states, uh, including Illinois, have various official state symbols that their legislators have declared over time. And uh, as a Cubs fan, um, i reminded the state bird of Illinois is the Cardinal, which is, uh, it's a great bird, but you know, someone didn't think that through all the way. I it's awkward, yes. To, uh, but uh, in Wisconsin, they actually have declared they have a state drink, the Brandy Old Fashioned. So that's, that's the first law. And then the second one, sticking to our neighbors to the North, You know, they love their brandy. We know that. But they also love their butter, too, and their cheese. Uh, And in Wisconsin, it's illegal for a restaurant to use a butter substitute unless the customer actually requests it in a restaurant.
0: Speaker, do you want to go first?
1: I think the butter law is real
2: and the drink is fake.
0: Okay. I... I think it's the opposite. I think the brandy old fashioned is the real law, and the butter law is the fake law. Bob, what is it?
1: Uh, the speaker got it right. Well done, that. Oh. Uh,
0: <laughs> nice they, work.
1: They they claim it's for health reasons um, <laughs> that like the butter substitute could be a threat to your health. <laughs> Which I think is kind of funny. And uh, I think the brandy, you know, Wisconsin is is for real the uh, like by far the largest consumer of brandy in the world, the state of Wisconsin. So um, Uh, you told me
2: that it was the uh, you had to drink a Coors beer
1: at least once a day.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um I will not bore you with the reasons why, but I'm a longtime boycotter of Wisconsin and um this just reiterates my correct view of not, not boycotting Wisconsin. Okay. Okay, side note, you don't get to be the mitten state. Michigan is the mitten state. That's all I'm gonna say. So anyway, back to <laughs> my, back to my uh my my turn. So um okay, ready? In Pennsylvania, it is illegal to catch a fish using your mouth, your hands, or dynamite. Or, option two, in Massachusetts, all men, technically under law, must carry a rifle to church on Sundays. Speaker Welch, why don't you take the first crack? Well, you
2: know, Massachusetts is one of the original colony states. And so they probably have that rifle law still on the books and don't know it. And the Pennsylvania law about not catching a fish with your
1: mouth or a hand uh, is fake. <laughs>
0: okay, Bob, what do you think?
1: Uh, I think that's a pretty good analysis. You know, I, uh, I, I I'm going to go with the speaker on this one.
0: All right. Well, you guys. Uh, are very close, actually. You're absolutely right, Speaker Welch. It is a law from the colonial times, for I think obvious reasons. But it was repealed in 1637.
2: Oh, they at least repealed it. <laughs> <laughs> it is repealed.
0: And in Pennsylvania, for our Pennsylvania listeners, you should know it is illegal to catch a fish using your mouth, your hands, or dynamite. So, <laughs> well, good job today. Um, you 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 went one for two, which is actually a pretty good record on the show. Um, And that is our show for today. I want to very sincerely thank our guest speaker, Chris Welch, uh, historic new speaker of the House of Illinois. Um, Thank you for your time and for this interesting conversation. I also want to thank my co-host, Bob Glaives, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. They're very fantastic and truly the very best in the business. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the Chicago Bar Association, thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon at the bar.